Why Do We Sound So Good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike. Hey, everybody. I'm Susanna Mars, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. Today, I'm talking to Ron Blessinger and Greg Ewer and Joe Berger, all of 45th Parallel Universe. And Joe is going to be joining us in a little bit. And um, welcome. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. um, It's just one of my favorite things to do is to talk to artists about what they do, why they do it. And you guys are doing really fun and interesting things. And you have a show coming up called The Big Bang on October 5th at the First United Methodist Church at 7 p.m. And what what the heck is it? (laughs) Go ahead, Greg. Well... (laughs) The Big Bang is basically uh, the celebration of the evolution of 45th Parallel from its first 10 years to its future as a collective. For the Mm. first 10 years, um, I was the artistic director of 45th Parallel. I'm no longer the artistic director, uh, but we have 15 or so of us who who put our minds together and, uh, you know, pull out all of the ideas uh, from the grab bag of of concerts and projects that we've always wanted to do. Mm. And together, collectively, we are the new artistic directors of 45th Parallel. So the Big Bang is basically the celebration of what we've done over the first 10 years, and it will launch us into this next exciting chapter. Well, many of you are former, not former, current members of the Oregon Symphony as Mm -hmm. well, and so you have a lot of balancing to do in terms of your art. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to, to dive into something that would be you know, so demanding. Well, um, as Greg mentioned, this is celebrating 10 years of 45th Pearl already. So, I mean, this has been a labor of love for Greg and, and uh, Greg's friends in the community already for 10 years. Um, and we find ourselves as symphony musicians. I, I, I mentioned this to a friend the other day. We have a lot of time to sit on stage and just imagine, you know, let our imaginations run wild as to how we might want to perform music, how we might want to engage an audience in new and kind of unusual ways um, that our quote-unquote day job doesn't allow us to do. And Mm so uh, 45th Parallel has always been a platform for musician-inspired and musician-managed creativity. Mm. And so um, this, it's not just a labor of love, it's it's us uh, managing and curating and kind of driving the bus um, in really every way, um, and getting the chance to indulge our creativity in a way that uh, we don't often get to do. So when someone opens the door to the church on in October, you know, what do you think they're going to experience? What's your hope for them? Well, my hope is that they will perceive a group of friends that have been making music together in different situations in the city for a long time. And this group of friends is now kind of uh, formalizing the appreciation and camaraderie that we have in an organization that's going to let everybody have a say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're walking through the if you're walking through the door that day, um, what we want to hopefully uh, give people is a sense of this this beautiful tradition that has always valued. Uh, diversity of programming, and that has always valued sort of the informality of uh, great music. Because I mean, it's oftentimes it's pre- presented in a very formal way, mm-hmm. and uh, that is something that I think collectively we all uh, would love to chip away at a little bit. So, some even though the the 
venue for this particular this first show uh, is a church. Um, uh, you know, you you always have space issues that that will sort of pigeonhole you into certain venues. But uh, we're going to be sharing some some informal thoughts with some of our past uh, guests and uh, just basically having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want people to to leave thinking, "Gosh, this this was a really good time." I want to I want to experience music with this crew of musicians because it's so obvious that they are having a good time with what they're doing. Well, I don't mind the church environment, really, because for me, great concerts are a form of fellowship, mm-hmm. whether they have a religious context or not. And and the spirituality of music and the connection that um, we feel with uh, audience is a, is a, you could say it has a religious kind of connotation, but... Um, you know, fellowship with ourselves and with our audience, I think, is uh, an appropriate, appropriately experienced in a church. A great point. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, coming from a symphony context, where really we're trying to break through that idea that yes. everyone's in a tuxedo and yes. it's very uh, uh, mannered. Right. And I'm knowing musicians as I have over the years, working with musicians mm-hmm. and seeing relationships and the love of each other mm-hmm. and the love of the music, the passion that kind of is beneath the surface really in a symphony setting mm-hmm. is something I would imagine because you are a collective and you must love each other pretty deeply mm-hmm. and probably spar with each other. And, you know, oh, how never. how is it to be, is 45th Parallel a place where you as an artist, you know, do you do like a post-mortem, you know, well, how is it, does it physically feel different than the, than the symphony setting? Well, uh, before we leave the idea of, of environment, I just want to, to comment how much environment affects the way we listen to music. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've done concerts of Chinese music on a concert stage that is understood one way and you do it in the Chinese garden and, and it's the same music and it's just heard a completely different way. Mm-hmm. And going forward with 45th Parallel, we're going to be experimenting with musical environments in different ways mm-hmm. that it sets the table for listening. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as sparring, you know, this, this is one of the really awesome things going forward is the opportunity to work out processes. Some might call it socialism. <laughs> um, and we're not, you know, I'm, I, I think that word's gotten a bad rap. So <laughs> we're, we're um, I think one of the strengths of the group will be the process that we are engaging that not only leads us through planning processes and curatorial processes, but also through rehearsal processes in our uh, chamber orchestra, Helios Camarada, which will be performing without a conductor. Mm. So that all, uh, our, our value system of collective cura- curation and performance interpretation all is exemplified in the chamber orchestra. How yeah. do you invite your audience into that collaborative? <laughs> go, go for it. It's a, it's a very well, interesting I wish question. you could see no. Ron's hands moving right now. Well, you know, I'm, it's like, it's like a I'm not Italian, but I kind of feel like, you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we are going to be looking to engage the audience in non-traditional formats in the future and, and ways of bringing the audience closer into the proximity to the ensemble. One very direct way that we're doing it already is this fabulous um, relationship that we're beginning with Bravo Youth Orchestras, where we're having students uh, participate in our rehearsals mm-hmm. by sitting amongst us as we rehearse. And so mm. that's an audience, and that's a form of audience integration that mm-hmm. uh, we're looking forward to um, pursuing more and more in the future. Um, and um, Should we take a break and yeah. invite Joe in? Because I just saw him walking. Okay. Okay. 
Welcome, Joe. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you're here. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about 45th Parallel, how you're doing innovative work. Um, and before we even started, we were talking about grief and love and how that plays into making of art. And you were talking about a particular project you wanted to talk about. Oh, I think about. Greg, this, um, Greg started developing this project uh, a while ago, and, and Greg is the, is the right person to, to describe Query. it. Yeah, well, you, uh, we're all familiar with that tragic uh, episode on the Max train that happened, I believe it was uh, May or June of a yeah. year, uh, just over a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was really kind of moved to my core by that because, uh, you know, I've always imagined myself in, in situations, you know, what, what we always ask ourselves, what would we do in a particular situation? And here was a situation where three uh, Portlanders were just, you know, minding their own business on the way to wherever they were going. And all of a sudden somebody gets up and, you know, starts being, uh, verbally abusive to other passengers on the, on the train. And, you know, you always, you always maybe hope that you'd be able to stand up and, and say something, but it, you know, on this particular day, you had three people stand up and two of them lost their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I've talked to so many people about, this since then. And, uh, one of the things that I hear most frequently is that, yeah, it could have been any of us, mm -hmm. any of us who, who found the courage in that moment to kind of intervene. Um, you know, it, it's, it's haunting. Uh, so I, I, I reached out to Micah Fletcher, the, the, mm -hmm. the poet and the musician who survived the, uh, the stabbing. And I asked him if he would, if he had any interest in, writing some new poetry that addressed what happened. And then our organization would uh, hire four composers um, that are here in Portland and that, that, you know, lived through uh, this, you know, as part of the community and write pieces that were either in, inspired by the poetry or that incorporate the poetry in some way or that are, that are just a meditation on the experience and the psychology and, the grief and the anger and all of the things that that came from it. Um, and so this has turned into a project that's going to be happening in February. I think it's the 15th. Mm -hmm. And um, it's... How perfect, right by Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah, well, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's going to be powerful. Mm -hmm. I've, I've already read... Micah has already finished his four poems, and they are incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. incredibly moving. And I know, you know, once the... The four composers heard this poetry. Um, it was kind of a, you know, everybody sort of sat up straight and was like, "Wow, this is this is something that's really, uh, this is this is an area that has a lot to say emotionally and and musically." So, what an opportunity, though! You're also going to give the city to attend the concert and continue to grieve the loss of those people and that that particular situation that I think things happen in the news and they come by and sadly right now there's so many things that are really difficult to digest and to to give us the opportunity to renew the sadness uh of such a loss it's really impactful mm -hmm. well so, it's, thank it's, you it's really one of the reasons why art exists i mean to to allow individuals in a community perhaps the opportunity to reflect 
on something in in new and different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it also offers us the time to do it because in our lives, you know, it's uh, wake up in the morning, check your email, go to work, you know, come come home, check your email again, cook <laughs> dinner, you know, go to. It's there, our lives are so jam packed with with activities, uh, and and when you have an opportunity like this to sit and reflect, um, I think it's it's always a healthy thing. Yeah. So I imagine that in drumming up this idea and nurturing this idea into fruition, you as an organization also must have really drawn closer in the in the loss and the decision to make a piece of this magnitude. Yeah, I think organizationally, well, I mean, the the connection to the community and the opportunity for us as musicians to be a part of creating artistic moments like this, that's just where, that's our value system. That's what we do. These are the opportunities that... Uh, that we look forward to. So this is this has been part of the DNA, if you will, of 45th Parallel since day one. I mean, that's that's an extension of Greg and who Greg is and his vision and and um, and his desire to connect with the community in this way. So I mean, this is again just an evolution or just typical and a, a traditional aspect of 45th Parallel's uh, artistic presence. Talk a little bit about the program at David Douglas, if you will, about the private lessons that are taking place. That's really phenomenal. Well, that is a program that started uh, six years ago, mm-hmm. and it started with a conversation with my next-door neighbors, uh, who are teachers at Alice Ott Middle School. Wait a minute. You talk to your next-door neighbors? <laughs> wow, you musicians. Can you believe it? <laughs> Those artist types. <laughs> Good thing you don't play the drums, right? <laughs> right. Well, then you'd really talk to your neighbors. <laughs> well, we did move eventually. So or the or the uh, bagpipes. <laughs> yeah, then, then you wouldn't be talking. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, we uh, we just it was you know one of those conversations in the driveway where we were talking about uh, uh, you know being in the Oregon Symphony and how growing up in Houston I had a tremendous presence of music in my public schools and wouldn't it be nice uh, to do something like that with. Uh, uh, with 45th Parallel and their school. So mm-hmm. I reached out to the principal and the music teacher there. There was already a, a music program, and that was one of the reasons why that was such a great fit. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have a music program already, it's hard for people to come in a few times a year and mm-hmm. really gain any traction with with students. But since the music program existed and there was a strings program, it was really uh, easy for us to say, hey, how can a string quartet come in and reinforce um, the existing curriculum, the existing uh, tradition that is being built there at the school and through the music program. Mm. So we started by coming in and giving uh, quartet concerts at lunchtime for the whole student body. Uh, we went into the to the music class and uh, participated in their rehearsals and kind of worked in tandem with the teachers. Uh, we We kind of took each section to different classrooms and, you know, a violinist would work with the violin section, uh, cellists and violists and bassists would do the same. Uh, so that was what it looked like the first year. The second year, the Oregon Symphony came to us and said, we love what you're doing. Uh, this really resonates with our values as well. Uh, how can we help? Hmm. So the, the answer was kind of easy <laughs> because... When you're at a school that is, uh, you know, it's it's a very it's a high 
diversity, high poverty school. Mm -hmm. Lots of kids are on the free lunch program or mm -hmm. the reduced lunch program. Mm -hmm. um, you know that very few of them are, are taking private lessons. Mm -hmm. Private lessons are usually very expensive. And, mm -hmm. you know, to do something like that with any regularity is difficult in and, this day and age. And the thing that often we forget about in those types of situations is not only are the lessons expensive, but the ability for students to get somewhere Absolutely and have true. a parent who's able to deliver them. So there's so many pieces to the puzzle that you, you know, it's so much bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the symphony's involved involvement allowed us to address both of those things. Wow. Uh, we were able to, to give free private lessons, private music instruction mm -hmm. uh, in conjunction with Alice Ott's after school program that already existed there. So we mm -hmm. just kind of plugged our free private lesson program into something, again, that already existed. Mm. And students didn't have to drive anywhere. They just had to stay after school. And I think there's even a bus that leaves mm. after the private lesson. So mm. we've had a lot of help from the school. Uh, the, their buy-in has been tremendous. Mm. And uh, the program is going strong. We couldn't be more excited to see where it goes in the future. That is so thrilling. I'll just add that, that between that program and the Bravo program, too, um, I, I grew up in Oregon, and I remember there was a time when music education was a real force and a presence in public schools, and um, these programs are addressing the lack of it or the, the you know, it's it's hasn't been the same for many, many years. And mm -hmm. we, we hope that these kind of programs help spur conversation to, to highlight the value that uh, and the necessity for this type of education. And we look forward to those programs coming back into the school's full force. Yeah, I'm really interested in that also because I know there's lots of conversation about how arts education is so important as a supplementary or to right. rise raise scores in other areas. But the reality, I don't, in my opinion, as I get older, is it's just arts for arts sake. And <laughs> Uh, the joy of it and the joy of life and making music. Mm -hmm. um, well, we always we always talk about how music helps other things, but Einstein was a guy who did those other things, and he said, you know, given the opportunity, if I were not a physicist, I would have been a musician. I, I totally live my life through the eyes and ears of a musician. So, you know, there's somebody who was pretty good at math who pretty good. wanted yeah, to spend bad. more time in the musical realm. Oh, I hate to think that we have to wrap this up, but I wanted to ask each of you individually what have you read or seen recently that's inspired you that helps fill up your artistic well? <laughs> Joe. Poor Joe on the spot. Oh, I don't know about something specific in terms of what I've consumed in that regard, but I will say that one of the reasons I'm excited about 45th Parallel um, and its sort of expansion is as orchestral musicians, we sort of uh, live our lives as a a part of a large organization that is trying to deal with all the central issues that you guys have talked about, how we relate to the community, so, uh, social causes that are necessary to highlight um, connection with an audience, musically, artistically, just for its, in its purest sense. And in that capacity, we can have incredible experiences, but it's not as direct for us as it is in an organization like this, where we get to directly attempt things and get the direct feedback for its success or failure, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of causes that we might like to highlight mm -hmm. or, or events, as well as just the simple understanding of, of, of the interaction that happens in a concert, mm -hmm. how an audience reacts and how we react to them, and what that means for our next performance. So, so this sort of opportunity to forge ahead where musicians get to take 
the lead in that communication. Mm -hmm. It's not the lead so much in the production of, because almost that doesn't matter. It's the communication level that we get to be more hands-on, which I think a lot of other styles of music musicians get to be involved with. But for classical musicians, it's rare. That's like that continual feedback that keeps looping you into more positivity and creativity. Exactly. Yeah. And we get high moments with the Organ Symphony. I don't mean to diminish oh, that. We had yeah, a very high one recently with Gabriel Kahane's mm-hmm. premier um, emergency shelter intake. Mm, yes. Um, which That's was amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was a great experience and very inspiring to us as individuals. But as individuals, there's so many people that have so many interests and, and resources mm-hmm. to bring that are not utilizing that environment. Mm. So th- this is this is our chance. Hmm. Well, that's a perfect segue to my answer because that's <laughs> actually that example that Joe just brought up mm-hmm. was that for me is what came to mind. Oh. Um, it's it's first of all, it's a tremendous piece of music, mm. and uh, Gabriel Kahane is is you can you can tell by reading his Facebook posts. And by how he talks about these projects, that his mind is always in the community. Mm. Um, he's obviously a, a highly skilled musician. I think he plays piano and guitar, and he's, he writes really formidable music. Um, but uh, his, you know, his mind is always open to what's happening around him. And I think, uh, in a way that speaks to the changing values of of artists within classical music, uh, you can see with him kind of a burning desire to. To, to not just express emotions. Uh, it's not just about joy or sadness. It's about looking into the community and, and, and maybe sh- holding a mirror up to the community or, or perhaps, uh, I, well, it's, it's, sorry, I'm, I'm <laughs> searching for exactly the right words. Cause That's it was all such right. a, it's hard to describe with words. It was such a, a, a rich and complex thing that he did, but mm-hmm. he basically took a, uh, a form you know, something as mundane as a form and turned it into this beautiful oratorio that, mm-hmm. uh, that I think left so many of us speechless. So, mm. Yeah, I think we're all extremely proud of our organization for the, the vision mm. to undertake that and for the execution of it. It wasn't just the performance, uh, which was, uh, you know, the selection of the artist, you know, select, working with Gabriel to, to, to tell the story. The engagement of the Maybell Center Choir as a part of it, mm-hmm. um, and the community outreach—everything about it was well conceived and well executed. And now we have a recording to look forward to hearing that will continue the uh, the piece and ha- give it an afterlife. Well, it's, um, it's exciting also to hear of your relationship with the symphony. I know all of you as part of it, mm-hmm. uh, and also their support of your work as a group yeah. is—and they're doing beautiful work. So you know, while we're wanting you certainly to go to the concert, Big Bang, at that 45th Parallel Universe is doing. Check out the website at Oregon Symphony. I think you might be pleasantly surprised in the ways that the symphony is reaching out to the community and enabling Mm -hmm. uh, people to experience music in in new ways. And going there instead of, you know, demanding that audience show up at a concert hall, which is another type of wonderful experience, but to give opportunity to people who might not otherwise have it. It's remarkable. I'll I'll just add to that, that our old boss, Jimmy DePriest, used to talk about wanting to be as much a gallery as much as a museum. Mm. And we are um, not just, uh, how do I say this? 
we are eager to show how our art form isn't just tradition. Mm -hmm. It is a living art form. Gabriel is a perfect example of that. Um, not just in contemporary um, music and contemporary composers and living composers, but also in the way that we perform traditional music, maybe non-traditional ways. Mm. Um, all of that, we, we have an amazing toolkit these days from which we can create really interesting and engaging musical events. Mm. And whether that's stylistic, I mean, Gabriel covers everything from rock and roll to pop music to classical music. He's well-versed in all of it. But just amongst ourselves in 45th Parallel, we have a lot to work with mm. to fundamentally accomplish one goal, which is to create great musical events that engage our audience. And that's, uh, that's our mission. Well, we get engaged on October 5th, 7 p.m. at the First United Methodist Church and experience the Big Bang. Thank you guys for coming and talking to me about the great work you're doing. I'm looking forward to seeing it with everybody else in the city. Nice Thank you so much. Pleasure. I imagine that the artists of 45th Parallel would love the work that Patrick Walsh is doing, and I know that Patrick would love the work that 45th Parallel is doing. It seemed fitting that they would be on the same podcast. Welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. I am sitting across next to Patrick Walsh, who's a wonderful director who's now residing in Portland. And I first came into contact with him when he was directing Three Sisters at Northwest Classical. And he's continuing to do work there that's really pretty darn fascinating. He's going to be taking an Iliad to all the correctional facilities in Oregon. So we're going to talk about that today. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. Yeah, it's my, my pleasure. Tell me what brought you to this idea. Uh, well, basically, I've been volunteering in correctional facilities in Oregon for about the last three and a half years, and I've directed three productions uh, at a medium security prison in Umatilla, Oregon, Two Rivers Correctional, and I've directed Hamlet, Mary Zimmerman's Metamorphosis, and The Tempest, and then I also volunteer at Columbia River, which is in Portland. It's just on the other side of Marine Drive. And I help facilitate an arts and prison program there. And basically, you know, these places that I go to, uh, the work that we're doing is fantastic. But I hear so many things from people who are who have been at other prisons, just like, you know, it would be great if we had this at Warner Creek Correctional, which is like 15 minutes from the California border. It would be amazing if this was at Snake River, or this would be amazing if this was at Warner Creek, which is in Lake, which is in Lakeview, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many places in our state, and I think so many places that don't have access to art, that don't have access to quality productions. And I think that it's really the people who have the least access to it that actually need it the most, mm. uh, which is, I think, one of the great conundrums of the work that we do is, you know, how do you get it to the people who really need it? Mm -hmm. So kind of after talking to the people in my groups at these other correctional facilities, I just realized that there's a real hole and there's a real deficit for arts programming at other institutions. And so I started to produce and started to think about how we could do that. And that's how an Iliad kind of came about. So when you go into a facility, you... Tell us who you bring and how you go about creating this work. Sure. When we go in, uh, well, I can tell you, you know, we're going to go into rehearsals. We just had our first read. Uh, and Paul Susie, it's a one-person retelling of the Iliad. And he's a local actor. He's absolutely fantastic and is really big into uh, restorative justice, as I am. And we've really connected on that. 
So it's going to be me who's going in, Paul the actor, and then I've hired uh, a wonderful cellist whose name is Anna Fritz, who will also be coming in with us uh, so that the guys get not just a great theatrical experience, but they also get hopefully a really great uh, oral concert experience as well. Uh, and so we'll be the three of us, and then we have a stage manager who will also be coming in with us to keep me on task <laughs> when we go into these different places. So tell us, what's the, how has it been in the past when you've gone in? How does the day unfold? Uh, well, you know, it's kind of different depending on the program that you're doing. Like mm-hmm. when I direct plays with uh, where the incarcerated adults or the returning citizens are the actors, you know, I mean, you're in there for three hours a week. You kind of go in, you work on something. Uh, and then you leave and it's kind of such a compressed time period that it can be really, uh, it can be really great. It can be really scary. It can be really, uh, it can be really frustrating at times too, you know, because you only have three hours a week. It's not like a normal rehearsal schedule where you rehearse, you know, five or six days a week for four to, for four to eight hours. How long do you do that? And and how many hours of rehearsal do you get before you perform? Uh, it's, uh, we usually do somewhere between five and six months of rehearsal and we rehearse one day a week for between three and four hours. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different, but I'll tell you to be completely honest, like that's sometimes like the best three hours of my entire week. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, it's can be a pretty remarkable experience. Wow. So do you get a lot of people who are participating in these programs who are who are departing or coming in or how do you deal with people's movement? Well, at Columbia River there's uh basically if you're in Columbia River like you're getting out in under 2 years. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the way station people go to have a lot of programming to prepare them for reintegrating back into regular society. Mm-hmm. Uh at Two Rivers, I have people in my group who are in with life without the possibility of parole mm-hmm. and so they're there. Um and actually the first person who will be getting out from that group will be getting out in November. Mm. But there won't be anybody who's in my group of two rivers who won't have at least done 12 years in a, in a correctional facility before they get out. I have about a million questions I could ask you. <laughs> but something that I'm really personally interested in is how are people prepared to return? And have you spoken to returning citizens about what that experience is like and how people, if they're interested, could aid in that type of return? Sure. Uh, I am a home for good mentor in the state of Oregon, which is that I can have contact with people once they get out to give them resources. Uh, I've done everything from, you know, go to an AA meeting with people or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting with people, uh, people who need that sort of uh, instruction. I've also just, you know, helped people put them in touch with like different housing options they can have. Uh, but to be honest, I think being a returning citizen is actually really, uh, it, it's really scary. And I had one guy in my group who was getting paroled to Lincoln County and his parole officer told him that, uh, you know, he was supposed to have like housing set up and then that fell through. He said that then he could have three nights in, in a motel. And he was like, what am I going to do after that? And he's like, you're just going to have to sleep on the straight. Oh my That's, gosh. that's literally what his parole officer told him. Uh, and he's like, well, you're supposed to keep in touch with me, right? Like I'm, you're my parole officer. So like, you have to be able to come visit where I'm going to be. And he's like, yeah, you can just show me where your camp is. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's the reality for so many people who are coming out, you know, they don't have, right. They haven't worked for however long they've been in there. They may have worked up 
in the prison, you know, they get a very small amount of money for working mm-hmm. eight to 12 hours a day. Sometimes that is taken away when they, when they are preparing to leave for a variety of reasons. Uh, and you know, a lot of these people do not have, uh, good home lives, do not have supportive parents, do not have a family support of any kind, which is the reason for the most part that they are in prison in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like being, being a returning citizen and the prospect of that is like so scary. And mm-hmm. I think it's why we see uh, such a large amount of recidivism in our country. Although I will say just to, just to plug the, the Oregon Department of Corrections is we have the second lowest ref- recidivism behind Wyoming in the entire country and the things that they are doing really in Oregon it's it is a lot more about rehabilitation than it is about punishment like that's starting to turn around that's fantastic yeah yeah it's a great state I tell everybody if you're gonna break the law do it in Oregon (laughs) (laughs) great yeah 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 oh that's fascinating yeah and then we spoke recently and we talked a little bit about what does it mean to be able to show data about how art and, and, and people having access to art, how does it improve their lives? Does it improve their lives? I mean, w- what does that mean to you? I, I, as an artist, I just believe, I know in my gut yeah. that to make contact in that way is something that is healing and, and imp- an important part of being a human being. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. You know, I think one of my big problems with uh, the idea, you know, you hear theater people all the time, the people who are involved intimately in it, you know, like the arts are very important. Mm -hmm. And then nothing, (laughs) you know, and then it's not why, or it's like, I feel this or I know it. And, you know, maybe it's because we're so attached to it in our lives. And I can just say that before I moved here, like I was very sure I was going to quit theater. Like I was very... I was like super burnt out, you know, trying to be a working artist. And New York it was, came from New York, just yeah, so everyone is aware. I came from New York. And the first, the two years before I moved here, I was working as a director, which was fantastic. But, you know, I was really having real questions. And I think it's, you know, I moved here in my late 20s. And I think it's that common question, like, does anything I do actually matter to anybody? Mm-hmm. This way that I naturally participate in the world, like, does anybody care? Mm-hmm. And really going into these programs and working on these theater programs in correctional facilities are something that really turned it around for me. Mm-hmm. You know, where I can say, well, I know it matters because let me tell you this story about this guy and how he grew. You know, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things having being at a place and having the longevity of being at a place for three years and rehearsing six months is you really see the change that can happen in somebody. And it's really beautiful, you know. Well, you're making real relationships. Yeah, you do. But it's not even I mean, I wish it was like more about me, you mm-hmm. know, but it's not like it's about it's about the art of theater. And it's about the work, the collaborative work that we can do together to mm-hmm. help each other move forward, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it's like such a beautiful thing. And I think it's so hard because, like, I explain that. And to everybody out there, I think who's a a statistician, like, that is an anecdotal evidence of what happens, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we need concrete numbers that we can plug in. Mm -hmm. And right now there's only, like, one study of arts and corrections by a guy named Larry Brewster, Mm -hmm. uh, who is a professor at the University of San Francisco. And he worked in San Quentin. And he gave – and now we have all this data, right? But now I think it's – behooving on the people who are doing that work to collect that data in those other states and at those other prisons 
so that we can have something to bring to Congress. We can have something to bring to state legislatures and be like, this is a thing that mm-hmm. is making a difference in so many people's lives. Like this, we need a budget line mm-hmm. on, on the budget next year, whether it's city, state, or federal, like to be able to support this. So it's not just kind of a, a network of a bunch of people like me who are just spread out everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we need to, we, we need to bring that evidence and we need to work together to be able to make that happen. Hmm. So why the Iliad? Oh, you know, I'm just like a classicist. And I really think that the, and Northwest Classical believes this too, but you know, I really think that curing the ills of the world is based in telling like our most classic primal stories to ourselves in an intimate setting, you know? It's like these great plays when you work on Shakespeare or you work on Chekhov or you work on something like the Iliad, um, it like unlocks something really special for people. And like, that's a very primal tribal thing, I think. Um, And it's beautiful to watch. But so when I was thinking about like plays that I wanted to do that I thought were appropriate to this, uh, the Iliad immediately came up. And then in Iliad, which is a play written by Lisa Peterson and Dennis Mm O'Hare. And one, it's a one person show, which is, you know, it makes it easily tourable, like for my first time that I'm going to do this. Uh, And also there's, you know, there's this undercurrent in the play about our society and our communities and our attraction to violence and rage and also how we can break that, you know, how we as individuals and then as communities can break that and move past it. And each show we have will be accompanied by a talk back. And I think that is, well, I know that's a topic that so many people who are incarcerated are interested in exploring. You know, like I feel like, like, well, everybody in every one of my groups thinks they should be in prison. Like, there's nobody who's like, I shouldn't be here. They're all like, I would be dead if I I didn't come to prison because I was living in a really, really hard way. Um, But, you know, as they get, as their cognitive thinking skills kind of develop uh, in there and just thinking about it, you know, they're so interested in how they came to this point in their lives Hmm. and that they feel like it's a that it's an embracement of the things that they learned when they were kids because nobody taught them any sort of coping skills and that it's something that has followed their families for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, the tragedies, uh, I was speaking earlier with someone else about this and some of the tragedies that have befallen people who are in, who are incarcerated are so horrific that you don't really even want to think about what it would be like to meet a, a person who had, you told me in particular about a gentleman who had been burned in the face with acid yeah. by his mom. Um, these when are, he was two. Right. Like, that's something. <laughs> and these are things you just, I mean, everyone wants things to feel all black and white and easily digestible. They're a bad person. They're in prison. It's just not like that. No, it's certainly not. You know, I, well, I, well, I know it's not, right? I mean, the people, like, I would any most people in my group like I would invite them over for dinner Mm -hmm. you know and they've had to go through so much just to get to the point that they're at you know and they have to go farther and everybody's very aware of that and I think that's one of the beautiful things about people who are interested in theater in prison you know for the most part nobody's ever seen a play nobody's ever been in a play but Mm -hmm. they're looking to make like a concrete change in their lives and they're looking to do something different and something that's scary and something they think is 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 worth their time, you know? So here's a question. Do you find the audiences in these facilities are different in terms of how they uh, view theater than, say, an audience at Northwest Classical or an audience at 
any theater in, in America? Yeah, you know, each, I think each incarcerated audience has its own special kind of ticks, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like to go into, to go into Coffee Creek, to go into the, the women's prison, everybody is so joyful that you're there. And those women are so much about like, they're loud and they're a great audience and they're so much about appreciating the thing that is there and mm. supporting each other at the same time. Mm. You know, it's like those myths of, of women kind of tearing each other down mm. all the time uh, seems to disappear when you go in there mm. and you're in it. And it's really a, a really awesome experience. And so you made work with those women. Well, that's when we brought three sisters oh, in. Oh, right. Okay, great. I, I have done like workshops there, mm-hmm. but I haven't directed anything there. Wow. Well, did you have a talk back after three sisters? Yeah, we did. Did anything stay with you? I know it was a while back. Uh, I mean, I mean, one woman stood up and she said, this is the only time I felt free in four years. Mm. And so we were like, well, we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> like, how could you not, you know? Oh. And... Uh, and yeah, and everybody was just like connecting on a real person to person level. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one actress who was just like so gracious, you know, in a, in a point I think where you could really shut down mm-hmm. and you could really um, fall aside and just like do your job and get out, you know. And it's like I saw these walls like drift away from her and she connected with this woman on such a person to person basis and like made a real connection. It's actually the best talk back I think I've ever been, like mm. ever been a part of. Mm. Um, and, and then men's prisons is actually kind of different because everybody's, you know, so worried to like show emotion and remain big. And so the, and so the play starts out and everybody's like crossing their arms and like making them, you know, like who gives, like who gives a heck about this, you Mm -hmm. know? And then it gets, and then by the end of it, you see people like open up and open up and open up. And then at the, by the time we get to the talk back at the end, everybody is like game for it and like asking so many questions. And, you know, we had a... We had one group come in and we, from one group, we got 14 people on the wait list to join the theater group just from that. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you obviously love this work. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. How could you not? Right. (laughs) Right. Um, So if someone wanted to get involved with this in some way, how would they go about it? Uh... So there's, well, I am just open to get coffee with anybody if mm-hmm. anybody's interested. Uh, at my website is patrickwalsh.org, uh, and there's a contact form on there. Uh, and I'm more than happy to get coffee or talk to anybody about it The because it can be like a really daunting thing when you start out. Mm-hmm. So if anybody would want to contact me, uh, I'm more than open to that. There's also the group which I volunteer for in these correctional facilities. It's called Open Hearts and Open Minds. And their website is uh, openheartsopenminds.net. And uh, there's contact information on that website as well as how to get in contact with us. Mm. So it sounds as though you're going to be doing this tour for about a month. Yeah, we'll start on our first performance is September 29th, and our final performance is going to be on November 4th. Hmm. How will you, uh, do you have an opening night celebration? Do you have a closing night celebration? <laughs> is it like traditional theater? No, I don't think so. You know, or I guess I haven't really, I'm not, I'm always bad with parties. I like the work and I guess I never think about that. I, somebody else is always in charge of it. Um, but you know, I think the people that we've gathered, I'm, I'm really hoping there's just going to be a lot of joy and kind of a continual celebration hmm. for the week that we're doing this. Will you document all these visits? 
uh, I will be keeping a journal, mm-hmm. and then I'm writing uh, an article for HowlRound, which is mm-hmm. the, the theater mm-hmm. commons, uh, mm-hmm. HowlRound.com, if anybody's interested. And so I'll be keeping a journal and then writing all of that information down and releasing it to HowlRound after we're done. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be good. Are you going to share any information with Larry? With Larry? The, the, the man who's taken the data. Oh, Larry Brewster? Mm-hmm. If I can get... This is the other thing. It's like hard to coordinate between each prison, mm-hmm. but I'm going to let him know that we're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also a woman. I went to a Shakespeare in prison conference down in San Diego, right. and there's was a woman there he works with whose email I have, mm-hmm. and I've let her know that we're going to do it. And you know, how can we like how can we aid in this as well? Mm, that's fantastic. How many people do you think uh, you'll you'll reach? Uh, you know, it depends on. Well, it depends on the. I. Th- we're going to one we're going to Warner Creek, which is again fifteen minutes from uh the California border, and nothing ever happens there. They literally told me I could come any day that I wanted <laughs> because there's nothing going on so I'm curious when you say that yeah. because when we spoke earlier also you mentioned to me that different facilities have different programs, and that it almost sounded to me when you described it, it's like moving to a good neighborhood. You know, well, you want to be in this one because yeah. they've got the good school system and they've got the good park and blah, blah. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's totally true, you know. Uh, and there are places, again, and they're usually closer to urban centers mm. because there's people who, you know, like Columbia River here mm. or... Um... So Warner Creek, for instance, having no programming and what type of people are living there? Uh, what types of crimes have they committed? Is Is that a reflection on the severity of their crime or is it just bad luck? No, I mean, uh, you know, when you... When you are convicted of a crime in Oregon, everybody goes to Coffee Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I, I call it the worst, like, sorting hat from Harry Potter ever. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you are just sent out. You know, it's like, you will go to Shutter Creek, and you will go to Snake River, and you will go to Columbia River. Not, it's just luck. I mean, yeah, or, I mean, it seems pretty arbitrary. Yes. You know, when you think about the amount of people that are arrested for, you know, armed robbery or anything like that, it's not like they put them all in one place. And in Oregon, you can move people from institution to institution with very little notice. And is that something that uh, people attempt to do to go to a a facility with more, uh, you know, ancillary events and activities and so on? I mean, some people do try to get transferred. Uh, It's very hard for... It's very hard for a returning citizen to be transferred, to ask for a transfer and to get exactly what they want. Mm. You know, they need a lot of sign off and they need um, sometimes years of good behavior. So if these people who are incarcerated at Warner Creek, you are going to be one of the only extracurricular type activities they are able to avail themselves of. So their day, do they have a work work? Uh, do they have, is there a factory there? No, like I mean, everybody will work, uh, like, it depends on the institution. Mm-hmm. Like, Shutter Creek, that is in North Bend that we're going to, is primarily, like, a, a work release program. Mm-hmm. So they will leave for the day to go do road detail, and then they will come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warner Creek, you know, you will work in the institution, mm-hmm. and that's and that's pretty much it. You know, you work in the laundry, you'll work in the kitchen, you'll work... Uh, you'll sweep up. Some people are barbers. Some mm. people work on maintenance. Some guys clean. Someone asked me about the money that they earn in those jobs. That does not go directly to them. 
they have an account in that can go to their like commissary account so they mm-hmm. can buy things in the commissary uh, but you can also divert it to go to other places but some of the what it, some of the things that happen economically speaking are they're serving the institution itself yes very controversial yeah it's uh it's certainly not <laughs> it's certainly not great yes yeah. it's um and and again, like those things can disappear. Even that money that they do make can very easily disappear, like from their accounts, which is another thing. You know, hmm. I mean, these are really, uh, and I think this, and it's, uh, you know, but these are the most disenfranchised people in our society. I hmm. think you know they're kept away from everything. They have no rights. <laughs> they're. Uh, Everything has been taken away from them, mm-hmm. you know, and unlike in other countries, our, our corrections facility, our, our corrections uh, code or Yeah, or it's just way. very different here, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, if you went to a European country, it's just all about rehabilitation. You know, how can we get these people to be productive members of society instead of locking them away mm-hmm. and keeping them uh, and keeping them as subpar as humanly possible. So I have a couple of um, kind of fun questions, you know. <laughs> I love Not fun. that what we've talked about hasn't yeah. been very fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most interesting thing you've seen or read this week? Interesting thing that I've seen or read this week. I, I am reading a book right now called There There by Tommy Orange. Uh, which is absolutely fantastic. And I got from the library and it's all about the modern native American experience. Mm. Uh, and this is his first novel. He's just like graduated from his MFA program. And I think it's absolutely fantastic and is helping me, uh, look at the world in a different way than I have before. Mm. Sounds fantastic. Is there a villain that you really feel for? Uh, I really feel, feel for Javert in Les Mis quite a bit it's one of my favorite books actually mm-hmm. uh, i think even like denoting him as a villain is actually kind of like a misnomer i mm-hmm. mean he's definitely like the antagonist in that book mm-hmm. um but you know he's just somebody who's fighting for what he believes in and only knows how to live one way mm-hmm. and so for him i i, I always feel for him i, I know all the songs from the musical too. <laughs> <laughs> is there music that you know by heart uh well, I guess it's the lame is. Yeah, no, but I think you just mentioned it. <laughs> Not the whole thing, though. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, Bob Dylan, "Blood on the Tracks." I could sing that front to back the whole time. The whole time. I won't ask you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest job you've ever had? Strangest job. Uh, I think this might be weird for people who know me, but like I worked as a dishwasher for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh. And that was, and I tell people that and they're always like very taken aback. Like, how could you do, like, how could you do that? Or like, didn't that feel like you were like demoting your intellect or something like that? And I loved it to be perfectly honest. Like it was a great way to make money when I was, when, when, when I wasn't directing or anything mm-hmm. else. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Patrick Walsh, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, telling me, me all about what you're up to. I just am fascinated by it. And you can look online at nwctc.org. That is Northwest Classical Theater Collaborative, openheartsopenminds.net. You can look at Patrick's webpage, 
and uh, learn more about what he's doing. Uh, I know he'll be directing in future all around Portland in addition to this incredible work that he's doing. So uh, thank you for what you're doing and how you've illuminated some wonderful questions for me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Susanna. And thank you guys out there for listening. If anybody is interested in getting in contact with me and wants to talk about arts and corrections, I'm again, I'm more than open to it. And I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, it's really fun talking to him. I would encourage you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Adventures in Artslandia. Download the Artslandia app on iTunes, where you're going to find a comprehensive arts calendar that's the best in the West. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Artslandia.